You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment, and the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Most sermons have happy endings. Everybody's glad when they're over. Surely you have either daydreamed or fidgeted your way through too many sermons filled with too many words full of too little meaning. How would you like to observe a wordless sermon, a silent sermon? Well, today and every time you observe the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what you have the opportunity to do. And not only do you have the opportunity to observe the Lord's Supper, but quite honestly, you have the responsibility to prepare and eventually deliver the Lord's Supper. It was A.T. Robertson who said, in reference to verse 26 of our passage of Scripture, which says, let's look at it again, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dr. Robertson said, The Lord's Supper is the great preacher of Christ's death until His second coming. Whenever you and I come to the Lord's table, we are declaring that God has taken the initiative to bring man together with Himself when man was separated by his sin. Also, the Lord's Supper, as we're going to see from this passage of Scripture, requires that there be a repairing of any ruptured relationships that exist in the life of the believer before participating 
in the Lord's Supper. Now you probably are aware of the fact that any sermon has basically two components to it in terms of its final presentation. First of all, the message has to be prepared. And as is true in any great endeavor, there's much more that goes into the preparation of a message than there is in the delivery of the message, which leads to the second aspect of the Lord's Supper, or any other sermon for that matter. It has to be delivered. What does this text of Scripture teach us regarding how we can prepare ourselves for this great sermon? Well, the basic principle of self-preparation for the Lord's Supper is to be found in the command which Paul gives to the Corinthians where he says that we are to, in verse 28, look at it again, let a man examine himself. The word which is translated examine is a word which suggests continual examination, not periodic examination, but a, a continual examination. We should always be bringing our lives under the scrutiny of God's Word by God's Spirit to see exactly of what we're made. Because the word which is translated to examine was a word which was used in biblical times to describe the testing of metal to determine whether it was real. So what you and I need to do before we come to the Lord's table is to do a bit of self-examination to see if we really are real Christians. There are many people who bear the name Christian who aren't indeed Christian. Hold your place here in 1 Corinthians and turn toward the back of your Bible to 1 John. In the book of 1 John, there are several tests which one may apply to oneself to determine if he or she indeed is a believer in the truest sense of the word. As you're turning there, let me remind you that this is not the only place that Paul suggests the importance of examining oneself. In fact, as he concluded the second Corinthian letter, he said this in verse 14 of chapter 13. He said, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Look at what John writes as the test that we normally associate with whether we are true believers in Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, we have what might be described as the test of belief. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So what is the test of belief? Do you have Jesus Christ in your life? Is there a remembered moment in your past when you chose to ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin and come into your life not merely to save you from your sin, but to be the ruler of your life, to be your Lord? Because the Bible is very clear that we have to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts before He can really be our Savior. It's part of the package. Do you believe in Jesus in this way? Have you opened your life and received His payment for your sin and in the process received the gift of eternal life? Now turn back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, a verse that we've looked at a couple of times in the recent past, but perhaps not for the same reason that we're looking at it today. And this might be called the test of behavior. 
In addition to examining ourselves to see if we pass the test of belief, do we indeed pass the test of behavior? Verse 9 of chapter 3 reads, No one who is born of God practices sin. Well, that disqualifies all of us, doesn't it? Is there anyone here this morning who has not practiced sin since we last met on Sunday a week ago? Or maybe a better question to ask, is there anybody who hasn't sinned even since you woke this morning? You may not be aware of it, but the likelihood is we've all sinned perhaps in some way even since we got up this morning. But what John is saying here, and it becomes apparent when we consider the tense of the verb which is used here, actually what he says in verse 9 would read well this way. Listen. Look at it again. No one who is born of God keeps on practicing sin. In other words, the true believer is a person who has forsaken a lifestyle of sin. Yes, the true believer lapses into sin from time to time, but this is not the habit of the genuine believer's life. So the test of behavior is another test which we must apply to determine if we really are indeed children of God. An aspect of behavior, and maybe this really fits with the test of behavior, is the test of love. Do we really love our brothers in the Lord? Look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now listen to this. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. None of us is perfect in our loving. However, if you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ, you do have a desire to love. And remember last week we looked at the subject of love from 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, and we determined that the kind of love that is spoken of here is not a sentimental kind of love. It's not a, a warm feeling. It's an act of the will. So you may not feel particularly loving toward other people, who are Christians, but do you act in a loving, responsible manner in the way in which you relate to them? Hence another test. Now turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, for what might be called the test of perseverance. Do you remember when Jesus was teaching what has commonly been called the Olivet Discourse when he was talking about the second coming of Christ? Do you remember that? And one of the statements he makes is somewhat troubling for some people because he says those who persevere to the end will be saved. Now the suggestion that to some people is that I've got to hang in there and grit my teeth and keep believing to the end and then I will be saved. But probably more precisely what Jesus is saying there is if you keep on walking with the Lord until you die, then you are truly saved. Now look at what 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says, speaking of those who love the world, and really he's speaking of antichrists here because there are many antichrists. That may come as a surprise to you in light of all the popularity of the Left Behind series where the suggestion is there's only one antichrist, and quite frankly that's true. It's one antichrist with a capital A, but according to the book of 1 John, there are many antichrists who've gone out people who've denied that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is actually what characterizes those antichrists. But look at verse 19 of chapter 2 and see what John writes. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. 
Have you ever known someone who may have been rather vocal in his declaration of faith in Jesus Christ? I've known of people who are actually preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have actually known of people who were Baptist preachers of the gospel of Christ who have gone out from among us and are no longer associated with Jesus Christ, who have in effect denied their faith. May I tell you, in light of what we've just read here from 1 John 2.19, they were never of us to begin with because they've gone out from us. They've denied Jesus. There's one final test in addition to the test of belief, the test of behavior, the test of love, and the test of perseverance that we should apply to ourselves. And turn back to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. This is a rather surprising test, maybe, that you and I need to apply to our lives. But nevertheless, it's an important test. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 and 8 read, It is for discipline that you endure... I believe the New International Version says, endure hardship as discipline. I like that. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Do you have any hardship in your life? I wonder. If I were to ask for a show of hands of people today who have no hardship in your lives, I guarantee you those people would be in the minority today if you're truly a child of God. And one of the tests that you can apply to your life, are you having some hardship? Well, the Lord uses the hardship to mold you, to shape you, to develop you, to conform you to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's His purpose in calling us to be His children, by the way, to become like Christ. And we know also from the book of Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. So we need to examine ourselves. Take a close look at ourselves. Are we for real? Have you really believed in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Are you a person who is not habitually sinning. In other words, you're not enslaved by sin. Are you a person who genuinely loves your brother or sister in Christ? Are you a person who is persevering in your faith? Obviously you are. You wouldn't be here today. Finally, are you a person who experiences the discipline of God in your life, the test of sonship? I turn back over to 1 Corinthians 11. And let's look at verse 27. This verse has created quite a bit of consternation for people throughout the years who've read it. And I'll show you why, and you probably know why. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, there's nobody present today in when we get ready to observe the Lord's Supper in a little while, who really is worthy to observe the Lord's Supper. I'm not worthy. Nobody is worthy in and of himself or herself. That's not what the text says. It says, whoever partakes of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. The very fact that we are unworthy is why Jesus died on the cross to begin with, right? In order that we could have a right relationship with God. When he speaks of taking in an unworthy manner, we have to understand the context 
of what was happening when the church at Corinth gathered for the Lord's Supper. And understand that our best understanding of the New Testament is every, every Sunday when they would gather to worship, they would observe communion. They would take the Lord's Supper together. But the church, as was true of most of the New Testament churches, was a mixed bag of people. There were some people who were free people. But there was a large contingency within the Corinthian church which was comprised of slaves. So the people who were free and were people of means were evidently arriving early to the place of meeting and they went ahead and began to eat and drink. And as you noticed as we read, did you catch what Paul said? He accused these people of actually getting drunk on the wine that was to represent the blood of Jesus Christ. That's inconceivable to us today because we don't use wine. If we use wine, maybe it would be. We use grape juice. It's the the juice of the vine. But nevertheless, we must understand that these people who were people of means, look at verse 22 again, what, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? There were many who were coming who had nothing. And as a part of their observance of the Lord's Supper, the part of their worship, they would have what is called an agape feast, a love feast. And they would have like a potluck meal where they pool their resources. And Evidently, the wealthier ones would say, you know, those slaves contribute nothing that's going on to this church when it comes to our love feast. So let's just eat up and drink everything there is before they get here. What was happening there? Well, there was discrimination against the poor. Now, lest I be misunderstood, our church is not a poor church. We're not an extremely wealthy church, but certainly we're the privileged percentage of those who live in this city make up this church for the most part. And I was reading in Leviticus this week, and you might say, wow, you really are hard up for reading if you read the book of Leviticus. Have any of you ever read the book of Leviticus? Well, I make myself read it every year because I try to read through the Bible, and it just so happens that's where my reading is right now. But I was reading in the 19th chapter, and I read something which I had seen before, but it struck me in a fresh way today when I read it. And this is what it says. In essence, it says that there should be no discrimination in the body of Christ against rich because they're rich or against the poor because they're poor. Do you know it's possible to discriminate against rich people too? The real problem in this church is that it had a lot of cliques in it. The wealthy were clicking up and they were excluding other people. And then they were overindulging. So what we need to understand is that we, as we examine ourselves, should perhaps add, and this probably would come under the test of love, the question to ourselves, are we cliquish? Are, are we people who seek to embrace other people? Now, obviously, we cannot have relationships with everybody in this room. I don't know how many people are here this morning, close to 100 people probably. The best person in terms of relationships can have in-depth relationships with 100 people. But we can be kind and loving toward each other, regardless of whether we are part of that group or the other group. There's no place for cliques in the body of Christ. Look at verse 17. Let's just read down from 17 through 21. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Now, that's why we've instituted the three-minute rule. 
in our church. Those of you who haven't been here, you get to experience it with the end of our time today, where we're asking all who are members of our church and people who are guests as well to spend the first three minutes after we dismiss interacting with people whom you do not know. It's an opportunity for you to reach out to other people. Some people are more gregarious by nature. I'm that kind of person. I want to know everybody. I love people. I'm in my element when I'm with people. I'd rather be with people than be alone, although I'm satisfied being alone as, as well. But I love people. I'm energized by being with people. Some of you are painfully shy. And it's a real effort, and it's hard for people like me to believe this, but it's true. It's a real effort for you to even come to a meeting like this for fear you're going to see somebody who you saw last week who told you his or her name, and you can't remember that name this week. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Well, understand that that person's had the same experience before as you've had. So you can relax about that. But what we need to do is guard against clicking up because that is not the way Christians are to act. Verses 19 and following, For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's what they supposedly were gathering for, but it was really not. Verse 21, For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Wow. Now look at what the outcome of that kind of approach to the Lord's Supper was. Look at verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, for he does not judge the body. And he's talking about the body of Christ here, rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Now that's not talking about the fact that they dozed off during the Lord's Supper. They were dead. Are you aware of the fact that there is biblical precedent for God taking His children home because of sinful behavior? And we don't see a lot of that today, or at least we're not aware of it if it happens. But believe me, we have an example in the book of Acts which we've studied about Ananias and Sapphira. But we also know from 1 John and from the book of James that if a child of God habitually lives in sin and will not listen to the Lord. In this case, it seems so innocent. Why would God take someone home or make, let someone get sick or even make someone sick who was not observing the Lord's Supper in a special way? That, in the right way, rather. It tells us there's something very serious that goes on when we come to the Lord's table. Very serious. It's about communion, as we call it, with God. And he's broken down the barriers through Jesus so we can have that communion. It's also about relationship and communion with each other. And relationships are so important in the body of Christ. Verse 32, verse 31 actually, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. Let's think about Jesus for just a moment together. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible records seven sayings of Christ. And the first one, according to most scholars, was the prayer to the Father. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. 
Had anyone asked Jesus to forgive him at that point? As far as I know, no one had asked him to forgive them for crucifying him. He's talking about those who are crucifying him as well as all of us, really. So Jesus took the initiative. He was the offended one. Yes, he took the initiative. So in the case of the slaves in the church at Corinth who were being excluded, what would have been the right approach to follow the example of Christ having been offended by the richer members of the church? To take the initiative to forgive, right? But the other side is true too. When we know that we have offended someone, Jesus says, if therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother. So if I have offended someone, I'm aware of it, I need to settle that issue before I come to the place of the worship, including the Lord's Supper. So we need to have this kind of approach as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. This is the preparation of this wordless sermon. And sermons take longer to prepare, as I've already mentioned, than they do to deliver. But the presentation of the message is also important, and this passage gives us insight into the presentation of the message. Let's go back to verse 23 now. Notice what Paul writes. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Stop right there. The night in which he was betrayed. That says a lot about the forgiving heart of Jesus. He knew that he was going to be betrayed by one of his own Yet he still took the bread. And look what verse 24 says. Is he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, and he was thanking God for his upcoming crucifixion. Imagine that. That's incredible. Thanking God for his upcoming crucifixion. What trust, what incredible love that Jesus would be able to do this. He broke it, symbolizing his body, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, there are certain kinds of Christianity which suggest that when you take the bread, as you, some of you, most of you will in a little while, and you eat it, it literally becomes the body of Christ. Now, I would, with all due respect, take exception with that because I believe Jesus speaks symbolically of his body and later of his blood when he takes the bread and takes the cup. I just think a moment about the way Jesus spoke of himself in other contexts. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. Was Jesus a literal door? He was a symbolic door, wasn't he? He's the door through which we enter the kingdom of heaven. And then another illustration I'd like to mention is he said, I am the light. Was Jesus light in the sense that we think of light? No, he was light in the sense that he illuminates us to the truth of who God is and what our need is and how he can fulfill that need. And then since we're in the vicinity, just turn back over to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Let's begin with verse 1 and read through verse 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And of course, this is talking about 
the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. Look at verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now let me ask you, was the rock from which the water flowed Jesus? Well, no. It symbolized Jesus, didn't it? Just as Jesus held that bread in His hands and He broke it, how could that bread at one and the same time be bread and be Jesus? There's no way it would be possible. Further light is shed on this in verse 25 of our text. 1 Corinthians 11:25 says, In the same way He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Notice He does not say, This cup is My blood. Rather, He says, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. What is a covenant? A covenant, probably the best word we have to describe it, is a contract. It's an agreement. Now, it so happens that the old covenant was based upon the law and the keeping of the law, which ensured, if a person kept it well enough, admission into God's good graces. However, God in the Old Testament provided a new covenant. He promised a new covenant. And he, we see this in the death of Jesus on the cross. And this new covenant is a covenant of grace. It's God extending His salvation to us independent of anything we will ever be able to do to pay Him for our salvation. You know, you and I can add nothing to what Jesus Christ has done for our salvation. He died for our sins, and we need to trust Him alone for eternal life. If we try to trust anything else, our good works, or any action other than Jesus Christ, we short-circuit our salvation. We need to understand this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Well, are you ready to preach a sermon? As we observe the Lord's Supper, we're going to do that together today. But I'd like to finish with one more challenge. Now just, just for a moment, just think about the people around you. Maybe the person beside you. Maybe your spouse. Maybe your child. Maybe your parent. Maybe a friend. Are you in a right relationship with that person? Do you have something between yourself and that person? Is there somebody in this church that has caused you a lot of distress and has really hurt your feelings? It may be me. Maybe some other leader in the church. Maybe your teacher. Maybe somebody that you did not ever expect would hurt your feelings. Maybe that person did it intentionally, but more importantly, or more likely, probably it was done inadvertently. Are you ready to forgive that person today before you observe the Lord's Supper? And if you're aware of the fact that you've hurt somebody, are you ready to ask forgiveness to humble yourself and say, Lord, I'm sorry? And then to say to the person, I am sorry for hurting you, for offending you. I, I love you. I want to be right with you. The story is told of the Latin scholar Muratus, who was a British man. And he was impoverished, found himself in a hospital. He was at the point of death, he looked like a beggar, and basically he was a pauper. There were two young physicians who were treating him, and as they looked at him, they began to converse in Latin, thinking that this poor beggar could not understand Latin. It was, there was a certain procedure that they had been experimenting with, and they, one said to the other, shall we try the experiment on this worthless creature? 
And Muratus responded in Latin by saying, Would you call the man worthless for whom Christ died? Everybody is worthwhile in this church. Everybody. In God's mind, there is no distinction. And consequently, everybody should be worthwhile to me and worthwhile to you. And we're going to take a moment just of quietness to reflect on our responsibility before God. If you just bow your head, some of you may want to come here to the altar and bow. It's okay if you feel led to. Just bow your head for a moment and just ask the Lord to search you and examine you to see if you are for real. Are you really a born-again Christian? Are you in the faith? If you're not, you need to remedy that right now by asking Jesus to forgive you of your sin. Thank Him for dying on the cross for you and ask Him to come into your life. If you're certain of your relationship to Jesus, are you in a right relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there anything which stands between you and another child of God? If you need to forgive someone, would you do that right now in the Spirit of Jesus? Just say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And if you're aware that you have offended someone, would you be willing to say, I'm going to go and get it right with that person today because I do not want to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Lord, we thank You for this moment of self-examination. And we ask now, Lord, that You'd help all of us to take a different look at the Lord's Supper today because of having looked at what You teach about it in Your Word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if the deacons will come. Prepare to... present the Lord's Supper. We just ask that you wait until everyone has been served and then we'll participate together.